0: Welcome to the podcast, Meet My Potential, where Deepa chats with leaders around the world once a week or simply shares her insights. This podcast is for those who aspire to meet their highest inner potential. Each episode brings you one simple tool that you can apply at work or in life.
1: Hello, and welcome to this podcast on the role of dialogue in change. Today, we have with us Paul Lawrence, Paul Lawrence is the author of the book Coaching in Three Dimensions. He has done more than 3,000 hours of coaching and is an expert on change and coaching in organizations. Let's welcome Paul. Oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to have you here uh, with us, Paul. And before we deep dive into the topic of the role of dialogue in change, Can you tell us a little bit what is dialogue, although we all have a certain version of definition of dialogue in our own brains because we use this word so Mm. often, but what is it for you?
0: Yeah, that's good. So dialogue, as I'm using the phrase, is I'm not meaning it to use the same as conversation and that's what a lot of people do. For a lot of people, dialogue and conversation are the same thing. I'm using dialogue to mean a very particular type of conversation and Thinking about dialogue, before any conversation, we make a choice as to what kind of conversation you want to have. Is it going to be dialogue or is it going to be monologue? And there's no right or wrong choice, but there is a choice. And the choice essentially is, before going into that conversation, do I choose to defend or do I choose to suspend? And if I choose to defend, then I'm choosing to protect and uphold a particular position or perspective. And if I choose to suspend, then I'm more open. And in dialogue, contributions build on contributions and new insights emerge. It's a divergent kind of conversation. Now, most of us readily identify debate as a form of monologue. That's just people tossing opinions at each other. But skilled conversation is more difficult to differentiate from dialogue. And, And that's what we do most of the time. Most of the conversations we have are actually skilled conversations and that's not dialogue. So if two people come to a conversation very respectfully and respecting each other's non-negotiables and, and the conversation might be really predictive and useful, that's not dialogue, that's monologue. And it's more likely to be convergent than divergent. Nothing new is likely to emerge. And there's lots of situations that call for debate and skill conversation, but to engage others in the creation of new possibilities, that necessitates a form of dialogue. So dialogue very briefly or very concisely is defined by William Isaacs. It's shared inquiry. It's a way of thinking and reflecting together.
1: That is a challenge because as we go up leadership positions, we have been conditioned to believe that we have opinions, that leaders have opinions, that leaders know what they're doing. Mm. And it's hard to suspend judgments, hard to suspend our own opinions and go there out open.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah, and but one thing I really want to sort of uh, make really clear is we're not saying that we don't have opinions. Of course we do. It's and, and it's not saying you push the opinion away. It's saying you just hold it. This is, it's almost like see it floating in front of your eyes. It's there. It's real. But you're able to have a have a dialogue at the same time as holding that view. That's that's the kind of challenge
1: of dialogue. Okay, excellent. In your experience, mm-hmm. how easy is it for leaders to learn how to dialogue after a certain point?
0: I think it's really challenging for all of us, not just leaders, to to engage in dialogue because I'm not sure that's how we're actually programmed. We're, We're kind of programmed to make assumptions. That's how we typically operate. So to engage in dialogue is effortful for a start. So we have to make that effort. But there's lots of other things that are going on here. First of all, and you sort of alluded to this, many leaders have a mental model of leadership that overprivileged positional power. And their model of leadership is around, you know, the idea that what I say is what happens. The idea that I can't control outcomes is quite existential, but that is something that gets in the way of engaging in dialogue. Another mental model is that I as leader should know all the answers. It's really hard to genuinely authentically listen and encourage the generation of new possibilities. If your mental model says, hey, I'm the leader, I'm supposed to know all the answers. And that comes up time and time again when we work with dialogue in workshops, in coaching and leadership workshops. I might have a mental model that uh, it's not my job to actually engage in dialogue with everybody, that if I go and engage in dialogue with some people outside of my, my line reports that somehow I'm stepping on people's toes. Time is a massive barrier for dialogue. It is effortful. It takes longer than just snapping out commands. So, you know, it takes time. So so there's lots of barriers to dialogue, and it's really good to talk about this because dialogue, I don't think the, the challenge really with dialogue is not so much a skill, it's, it's more of a mindset, I think, in terms of the listening piece. And I've just talked about the listening piece because the other barrier is saying that thing that needs to be said, and that opens up a whole other field of challenge because we do feel reluctant to a lot of us to really say that thing that needs to be said because we're afraid we're going to upset people. So how do we say that thing that needs to be said and how we do that respectfully? That's not easy.
1: Right. So we see there are many challenges that people face in engaging Mm -hmm. in a dialogue. Would you like to add something else to this?
0: Well, what I'd really like to do is frame just how important, this is the subject of of this conversation, just how important dialogue is in change.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, So tell us more about what, role dialogue plays in change?
0: Well, here's the thing, a lot of change theories, and and most of the change theories we get taught are very linear, and they assume we can direct change through authority and personal charisma. But those approaches to change don't usually work. People, just just ask yourself, if you've got kids, by the way, this would be really obvious, but people don't like to be told what to think. They like to make meaning for themselves. And they do that typically by talking to other people. So if you give someone an instruction, they may or may not verbally agree to comply, but you can be absolutely sure they'll go and talk to someone that they trust to make meaning of what you've just said. And from that conversation will emerge a new intention, and it may or may not be what you as an authority figure Intended. That is just how change happens. And it's very frustrating to authority figures who believe in the sanctity of positional power. And they express that frustration by blaming other people, using phrases like resistance to change. To get things done requires an understanding of how change really happens. And change emerges from dialogue.
1: So I can see how dialogue can be a big blocker in change. What challenges do leaders face in engaging in dialogue in a change process?
0: Yeah, well, we've already talked about some of them. But if we talk specifically about a change process, it's number one, simply just understanding that this is how change happens, because it's not how we often talk about change. As I said, a lot of stuff that's written about leadership and change overprivileges positional power. Positional power is real, but it's not the only form of power. Secondly, the capacity to step back and think systemically from a change perspective about who do I actually need to engage in dialogue because I can't engage in dialogue with everyone and, and who else needs to be engaging in dialogue with who. So it's about that, that capacity to look at things systemically and, and look at things through this lens of patterns of dialogue. And then we've got all the other ones we talked about, all the mental models around leadership and change. Right.
1: And especially the most important one, which is time to engage in dialogue. That's what most organizations are lacking today because we, we see Absolutely. everybody's in a hurry to get things done.
0: Yeah. it's When I was working at BP, actually, one of the senior leadership heads of, you know, the, one of the biggest divisions of BP said, sometimes you have to go slowly to go quickly. You know, we fly forward. In doing things monologically and telling ourselves that we're getting things done fast, of course, what often happens, certainly with complex change programs, is stuff just doesn't happen. So this this idea that we're pushing things forward fast in a complex space is illusory. We we sometimes do just have to take that step back to engage in a way that actually means that we get this change done and we get it done fast.
1: Right? Slow is fast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: All right. Okay. I know there are numerous trainings and workshops on collaboration. Yeah. How are they failing in their efforts to create more dialogue and facilitate change?
0: Well, I I mean, there's lots of workshops and I certainly haven't been on them all. But many of those that I've focused on, that I've attended, haven't focused in on the role of dialogue what dialogue is and the role it has to play and change. I might, in a collaboration workshop, spend a lot of time talking about how important it is to collaborate with other people and how important it is to engage in conversation. But you can engage in conversation with lots and lots of people, but if it's not dialogic, then you're not necessarily going to get to that level of relationship that you're already looking for when you're looking for people to be collaborative.
1: Okay. Can you give a concrete example of what dialogue would look like in a change process between people?
0: Yes. Yeah, I can. So let me actually hone in on the word facipulation. There's this lovely word, facipulation. I didn't invent it. It was sort of, I think it sort of emerged in the US, no doubt, from dialogue. But concrete example of how, I'll give you a concrete example of facipulation. Okay. Right. So I was working for this massive company and they got 300 people together in a room from all around Europe to talk about what are we going to be? Are we going to be operationally efficient? Are we going to be customer centric? I can't remember what the third one was. But the idea was we'll get all these people together to agree together what we're going to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And then on the morning of day two of this workshop, I sort of rolled in and, and ended up sitting at the front. And the leadership team, the European leadership team stood up and said, oh, you know what? We've been thinking about it. The answer is operational efficiency. And, and I, I thought to myself, the little voice in my head was going, I thought we were going to make this decision together. Anyway, okay. And then they said, so if you, everybody stand up. So 300 people stood up. And now sit down if you think that being operationally efficient is going to give us competitive advantage. And I was thinking in my head, all right, I mean, it's fairly obviously the thing to do, but I don't see how that's going to give us competitive advantage because I reckon all our competitors are doing the same thing. And by the time that thought process had finished, I realized I was the only person standing up in the room, that 299 people had sat down behind me. And then I noticed that the leadership team had spread themselves all around the room in a sort of horseshoe, and there's me standing up in the middle. And, And one of the guys said to me, one of these leaders, he said, Paul, what would it take, what would it take to get you to sit down. And and I'm thinking to myself, nothing, you know, nothing at all, but I I need somehow to retain my dignity here. So I asked him a question and I just waited for him to answer such that I could sit down as soon as I possibly could without losing face, right? Now, that meeting was called in the name of alignment and getting everybody together and consultation and collaboration. But the way that it was being, had the way it had been designed and run was actually quite monologic there was a predetermined direction even though it was in the name of collaboration the direction was predetermined and that's what the word facilitation means it's facilitation that's how it's being positioned as facilitation but really what's going on is manipulation so facilitation and manipulation is facilitation now it's not it's, it's almost never deliberate but it's that piece that says if i'm the leader to what extent am i really clear in my own mind about what is up for invention and what is not. And you've got to be really clear about that. And so if you if you want to create that kind of dialogic space, then you really have to be very clear about what the purpose of the dialogue is. And you have to be absolutely honest within yourself around what your own intentions are. You have to be really self-aware to set up that safe space where people are going to feel safe to say whatever it is they want to be said. In that meeting, I talked about 300 people and I'm the only one standing up. When he actually went to the dinner table that evening and talked to people, very few people actually thought that being operationally efficient was going to give us competitive advantage, but it was not a safe space to say that.
1: That's a fantastic example of how dialogue didn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. And if dialogue were to happen, what would that look like?
0: When dialogue happens, there's this kind of really special feeling in the room because you feel as a participant that this is genuinely a space in which I can say whatever I need to say. And it's a space in which everyone in the room is absolutely and authentically curious about what everybody else thinks. So dialogue is about that listening and seeking to really understand the other person and what it is they're saying. And it's that feeling free to say that thing that needs to be said, because I know when I say it, others are gonna listen to me. You know, if we're in a space where we don't feel we're gonna be listened to, most of us don't bother saying anything.
1: Right, so if I imagine people having dialogues, we're gonna have more grassroots innovation Mm -hmm. we're going to have directions that are coming from the people who really know what's going on.
0: Yes.
1: And then we start to disrupt the mental model of, I know the direction in which the organization or my department or my people are going.
0: So let me just pick on something there because something you said there is really important, that the importance of dialogue becomes ever greater the more complex our organizations become. Because it is a fallacy nowadays that as the leader of an organization, I know everything that's happening in my organization. And the traditional, the traditional strategy has been to rely on data. Data will tell me what I need to know. Data won't tell you everything you need to know. If I'm running a bank, right? the vision, my perspective on the organization sitting in my office is very different to what life's like for the person out there in a branch serving the customer. It's very different to the perspective of the person out there talking to customers in a contact center. It's very different from the product guys having the conversations with whoever they're having conversations with. If I want to understand my organ, one, I will never entirely understand my organization because it's too complex and it's constantly changing. But if If I want to have any sense of what's going on in my organization at a given point in time, I have to be connected to and engaged in dialogue with people across my organization.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. What is one advice you'd like to give leaders to support change through dialogue?
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to cheat a little bit there and I'll give you three very concisely. And these three insights emerged from the research I did where I talked to 50 leaders across the world and I asked them a very simple question tell me about an example of complex change where it went really well. And really what the core theme was dialogue. And so my, my three sort of things that I would say is, number one, go talk to people and genuinely listen. Listen without an agenda. Listen solely to understand. Number two, have the courage to say what needs to be said respectfully. And number three, as the leader of an organization, look at what's happening through that lens of dialogue. Who needs to be talking to who, who is talking to who, and how much of that is dialogue.
1: Thank you so much. That was very precise. (laughs) And (laughs) do you have a general message to the audience before we close this call?
0: I'd I'd, I'd say this. I think one of the fundamental drivers of dialogue is curiosity. So if this has been interesting... Go find out more. And and I'm personally happy to engage with anybody. I've got a stack of readings, references, and stories for those interested. So being a curious person myself, I'd I'd love to talk to anybody who finds this stuff interesting.
1: Excellent. So for listeners listening out there, the show notes will have a link to Paul Lawrence's LinkedIn page. And with that link, you can connect with him.
0: Yeah. And I'd love to hear from you.
1: Thank you, Paul, for being here with us.
0: (laughs) Absolute pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to know more how you can meet your potential, check out www.meetmypotential.com. That's www.meetmypotential.com. Join us again, and until then, stay cool.